This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did the 1980s have the best possible moments on VHS? Unpause and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from hmm, a couple of. See what I did there? I paused. I took a pause. Ah, Idiots hmm. Savants. Idiot Savants. There you go. Uh, my name is Will, and joining me, as always, is my friend and my co host, Ray. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Here we go. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about some of the most paused moments in 1980s films. What we're going to talk about is the, the fact that suddenly in the 1980s, we had this technology that allowed us to watch stuff at home, movies that we loved from the theater, at home in the privacy of our home, and do anything we wanted with the film. <laughs> Rewind it, fast forward, stop, pause. And we did. Yeah, we did. But before we move on, please don't forget to like, subscribe. It's free, by the way. If you're a middle-aged person just being turned on the podcast, you might not know. When we see the word subscribe, we're not talking about like, you know, uh, the Columbia Records uh, subscription, which I think was only a penny a month, right? Yeah, I was going to say, though, if they want to give us a penny, we could give them 12 episodes. For a penny? <laughs> for a penny, as long as they buy another one for seventy nine ninety five yeah. once a year. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. Or whatever it was. Yeah, there was some kind of catch, yeah. But, yeah. but it is technically 100% free. We don't charge you anything. So please subscribe. It just helps you know when another episode came out, which will hopefully encourage you to listen to it more. But even more than that, tell a friend about the idiots. Yeah. And um, if you do have some extra change laying around yep. that you want to spend on something, head over to T Public. Oh, yeah. That's T-E-E Public. Mm. And buy yourself some merchandise. Oh, yeah. Okay. Hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. You know, I was just thinking about this. Last year we did, because uh, last year the virus was just we were just starting to get hit by it and starting to understand it. So uh, we had a lot of sporting events canceled. Anything you did in public, a lot of stuff was getting canceled. And so we did Crash Madness because the future of March Madness was up in the air. Mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. wondering if maybe this year we should do Slash Madness, maybe have like monster villains go against each other. Ooh, that could be fun. We could do action stars. Yeah. If it was action stars, smash, smash. There you cool. go. It smash. writes itself. But uh, that got me thinking about last year, how we did Crash Madness, which featured a bunch of uh, iconic t uh, cars from TV shows and films going head to head or bumper to bumper against each other in this sort of fictional de de demolition derby. Well, hey, thinking about my favorite cars from that, uh, from, from that episode, we have just learned via the Rob, R-O-B-B, -B, report, and not when you, what you find out when you're next in our next door neighbor's uh, garage, <laughs> getting a download of information from him. David Hasselhoff is selling his very own Knight Rider kit car. Wow. Right? So later this month, just at the end of uh, January, you're going to have a chance to bid on Hasselhoff's personal kit. And in the uh, 
the listing for the auction, which is going to be conducted by live auctioneers, they actually say that it's functioning. Functioning, huh? Yeah. So the car talks to me and well, the mm-hmm. lights work and all that? Right. I mean, come on. If you're going to say it works, they know who they're dealing with as far as fans, right? We would expect William Daniels yeah. to be on a, a walkie-talkie or something somewhere, at least a, a cell phone answering us when we talk to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It says fully functional kit car located in the UK. Now, according to the listing here, the lot winner is responsible for delivery. From the UK? Yes, which seems crazy, right? If you're anywhere else but the UK. But if the price, you know, the ultimate uh, winning bid exceeds 25% of the reserve amount, which we don't know what that is, the Hoff will personally deliver the car to you. Holy crap. That would be awesome. (laughs) Right? So we just got to get some scratch together now. It's estimated that it will go anywhere from $175,000 to $300,000. They opened up a website which allowed people to start bidding ahead of the actual live auction. Hmm. And after six bids, it's currently up to $475,000. Holy crap. Yeah. We're going to need a lot of money from our GoFundMe if we're going to get this car. (laughs) Okay. Remember what Ray was saying about the T-Public t-shirts? Don't do that. Take the money you would buy the t-shirt, because we don't make any money off those. Send it to us directly. Yeah. PayPal, Venmo. Or or we start a, a... that's what GoFundMe is for, right? For buying Buy- 80s nostalgia? Yes. For podcasters to buy 80s nostalgia. Yes. Yeah, I thought so. And <laughs> if we can buy it, you know, some we'll figure out some way. A listener comes by and we'll give them a ride. Yeah. And then right? we could just drive it around all the time. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So the fully functioning, I don't think refers to that. Uh, uh, it actually has a, an artificial intelligence that operates the car. But the coolest thing about it, among the many cool things, is it, it does look, even though this car wasn't actually featured in the show, it does look like it could have been because it has a screen-accurate interior with all the flashing lights and gizmos and colors. It's got the light on the front, you know, that they stole from the Cylons yeah. in uh, Battlestar Galactica. I, I wonder if it just has OnStar in it, and they call that fully <laughs> functioning. Hey, I would take OnStar that sounded like uh, Kit. That would be awesome. <laughs> all right. Hey, in other 80s news, it's time for another of our new segments called... You've got to be kidding. <laughs> That's the, I didn't know that was the actual name of the segment. Yeah, that's the segment. You've got to be f-ing kidding. Because oh. they're oh, turning that, something that we love into something stupid. Yeah, okay. Or, I, I get it now. Yeah. Oh, how, how many times <laughs> have we done this and I just now got it? <laughs> I thought you got it the first time we did it, but I was wrong. You were laughing at something else that you were thinking was, of yeah. in your head. I guess. All right. Well, okay. Hey. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Hey, so we just learned another of our, another of the iconic toys from the 1980s, is being turned into a film. <laughs> I'm going to give you three toys from the 1980s off of top 10 toys from the 1980s. Right. One of these is being made into a film. The other two, as right. far as I could find, are not. I had to double check because you just don't know. <laughs> All right, here's your choices. And if you need to remi- be reminded of what these toys are, I'll tell you. Madball. Mm, very familiar, okay. yes. Teddy Ruxpin. Yeah, yeah, you put the cassette in him and he played Shout of the Devil. <laughs> I'm sure you did that. Or Rubik's Cube. Which of those is being made into a film? I think it's Madball. That would make good sense, right? Probably, because the other ones, you know what, though? It could be either one of them. It doesn't matter. I'm going to go with Madballs, though. <laughs> the answer is Rubik's Cube. <laughs> it would make sense if it was Madball. At least they had mouths and they could talk. Teddy Ruxpin. Yeah, you can get into, you know, sing Ozzy Osbourne yeah, or Motley Yeah, Crew. you got characters. Yeah. Uh, we learned this from Deadline that Rubik's Cube is a movie is in the works from Hyde Park and Endeavor content. 
So we don't know uh, exactly what what the film is going to be about. Of course, the uh, puzzle was the it was created by a professor of architecture, Erno Rubik, in 1974. But in 1980, the puzzle was licensed to the Ideal Toy Corp, which began selling it. And within just a year or two, it was the, the hottest selling toy. Uh, well, it was cer- certainly the hottest selling toy at the time. Um, to date, it sold over 450 million cubes. Nice. It's a pretty big deal now, you know, where these kids are able to solve them within seconds. They have these races. So it's probably hotter now than it was ever. I don't know, man. In the 80s, that thing was selling like hotcakes. That's true. And if you know anything about hotcakes, yeah. they sell fast. They're delicious, too, by the but, way. But, uh, you know, the the first one was made out of wood, not plastic. Is that right? No, I didn't know yeah. that. It's like, no. I guess you couldn't peel the stickers off that. It's probably painted on, maybe. Yeah, I think it was just like, uh, etched in or mm. designed so that he could make it work. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I saw pictures of it. Huh. It looked cool. That would be cool to have. Talking about buying stuff from the 1980s uh, vintage. <laughs> yeah, but that thing would be worth more than $400,000. And Erno <laughs> Rubik will deliver it to you. <laughs> yeah, he shows up and shows you how to solve it. <laughs> you know what? It'll be even funnier if he didn't even know how to solve it. <laughs> like if he was never able to solve the cube. Yeah. He didn't even design it for that purpose. He sees somebody mess it up and then solve it again. Oh, <laughs> so we don't know what this is going to be. You have no idea if it's going to be like the you know, go the way of Tetris, which is about some obscure licensing ag- agreement with a Dutch uh, businessman, <laughs> or it's something else. We do know that this company, however, is also developing a game show based on the best-selling toy. Uh, you know what the game based on the best-selling toy is? The Rubik's Cube. Yeah, it's going to say it's, right here. Just, it's the it's the cube, right? Uh, yeah. These things confuse me sometimes. I don't know what they're doing. They're, they're trying to take advantage of folks like us and folks that listen to our show who, you know, love stuff from the 1980s. Now they're trying to bilk well, us well, for things. Once again, though, it, we're pretty easy targets. I mean, the, the pet rock was still popular mm. for a long time. Yeah. Like if they brought that out now, we'd go buy one just to put it on our desk. Yeah, I was looking at um, something. I watched a documentary on uh, He-Man. He-Man Toys, the evolution of the toys in the show. And mm-hmm. in, in it, they mentioned uh, how they were Clash of the Titans toys made that like did no business whatsoever. So immediately I'm on eBay. I got to get one of those then. That's going to be cool to have that. <laughs> I need a little Perseus. Yeah, holding holding the head up. Yeah. You know what they, they showed in this documentary was they had a little uh, Bubo, the little owl. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted a real one of those. So I, they had a little toy figure for one. I couldn't find one though. But those toys are worth a lot of money now. Um Unless you're willing to take ones that have missing limbs and stuff like that. Then you can get it for cheap. Yeah, I, I don't know. They're taking advantage of our, you know, uh, nostalgia for the 1980s. And I don't like it. Yeah, I'll allow it. All right. Well, that was... you got to be kidding. <laughs> In other 80s news, here we go again. According to comicbook.com, Indiana Jones 5 rumor says that Chris Pratt is set to replace Harrison Ford. Now, that's the headline. That's not really what... The story the, is, but that's not even what the the, the thing the rumors, says. Yeah. Now the rumor comes from a gentleman named Daniel Rickman, who claims to be an insider, and I don't know what his track record is. No clue. So he recently claimed, without any evidence, proof, nothing, and in spite of the fact that Chris Pratt a couple of years ago said no, I'm not talking about being Indiana Jones, and Harrison Ford said even more recently there will never be anybody but me as Indiana Jones. He will die with me. Um, but Daniel Rickman is saying that there are rumors that Chris Pratt will be in the next film and he may be playing a younger Indiana Jones, maybe in flashbacks, and maybe that's setting up to have a prequel franchise 
where, you know, now we have a younger Indiana Jones, which to us at that point, it wouldn't make any difference because Chris Pratt's what in his thirties or something. And Harrison Ford was in his thirties. Mm -hmm. So the early Indiana Jones movies were younger <laughs> Indiana Jones. Anyway, this is not verified at all. No, but it makes good sense because yep. Disney loves to take things and try to do something with it like they did with the Mandalorian. Yep. And if they can pull this off and they put Chris Pratt in as the younger Andy, because there's like, I think 12 or 13 books in English. Yeah. And then there's like six or seven, I think, in German that were never translated into English. Talking about Indiana Jones books? Indiana Jones books. Oh, I have no idea. So they have, they have plenty of material. And those, mm -hmm. all the ones done in English, uh, George Lucas himself um, went through them hmm. and made sure they were up to snuff. Wow. So all those stories are ready to go. And if, if we could get a flashback to the younger Indy on a TV show on Netflix or something, I'm all in mm -hmm. on that with Chris Pratt. Yeah. The only person I wish was still alive was uh, River, River Phoenix. Sure. Yeah. Because he nailed right. playing young Indy in Last Crusade. I mean, the manneris mannerisms and right. everything. He would have by now been doing it already. But I I'm all in on Chris Pratt doing a TV show as Indy. I yeah, think it'd be awesome. You're right. They've already also created that precedent where they've had a young Indiana Jones in River Phoenix. And they had the show, mm -hmm. the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, where it was uh, an actor's name from the, uh, was he Boondock Saints? Sean uh, Flannery. Sean Flannery, yeah. So yeah, there is a precedent for that. And again, Chris Pratt's the age of Harrison Ford probably when he first played the character, but we'll say he's younger if we get us something out of that. Yeah. Well, Harrison Ford was like, what, 32 when he did the first Star Wars, so. Yeah. So techni technically, I think Chris Pratt might be a couple of years younger. You're right. Yeah. He might even be in his 40s at this point. Yeah. Hmm. That's true. So, hmm. and just like, you know, Temple of Doom, they said, they put the year at the beginning of Temple of Doom, which mm -hmm. then identified it as a prequel right. to Raiders. So they can put whatever year they want up there if they want to avoid the fact that it's not Harrison Ford anymore. Yeah, and I think uh, I think most of the books take place around Temple and Raiders. Huh. I wonder what it's like to read an Indiana Jones book. Have you read one? No, but I read a lot about it because I intended yeah. to read it, but it's easier mm -hmm. to just read about it than it is to actually read a book anymore. You know what you could do like the kids do? Watch some a YouTube video of someone else reading the book. <laughs> yeah. You know what? By cracky, I'm going to read some of these things just to see if they're right. any good. Now we got to track another piece of vintage nostalgia from the 1980s down. An Indiana Jones book. Put it on the tab on the Indiegogo or whatever it is. <laughs> All right. Hey, that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. So, yeah. So today, as, as, as we were just mentioning here, we're going to talk about some of the most paused moments in 1980s uh, movies, VHS, Betamax, film, etc. And just, you know, a footnote up ahead. They're not all going to involve nudity. They could all they could all involve nudity, but <laughs> in the interest of making it a little more, more you know diverse type of uh, scenes, we, we got a, a mix, right? Mm -hmm. So look, my family, my dad, he was the guy who he brought home a Betamax one day, and he told us the Betamax is the best technology you'll ever get. Don't listen to anybody else who tells you anything else. If a man who comes to you from the future and says that the VHS is better, don't believe that man. Betamax is better. And then you know, as uh, eventually we started watching, getting films, you know, we talked about this before. We mm -hmm. had, he had this kind of shady friend who would lend us, it was like a, he was like a rental, like a traveling rental sale, rental store, this guy. <laughs> what, what was your recollection as far as your experience with uh, VCRs? Uh, luckily home? for me, my mom loved movies and entertainment as much as I do. 
Yep. So it took precedence over electricity, <laughs> food, everything else. So a VCR was an absolute must have for her. Mm. So it we we had one. Yeah. I was surprised to learn in looking back, like we, again, we grew up in the eighties, of course. And so our recollection is that's when they came to prominence. That's when they were, you know, uh, peaked. Um, but I was surprised to learn that the first VCRs, and again, we're talking about video cassette recorders, playback machines were first available in the 1950s, but they cost around $50,000 in those dollars. So it'd be about, about $500,000 today. And so only only had TV studios that would use them to record, you know, TV shows and do playback and stuff like that. Um, of course, you saw some advances in the 60s, but it wasn't until the 1970s that we certainly had this, you know, a bunch of different companies coming out with VCRs. Sony, of course, came out with the Betamax. The big, these are the big players. Sony came out with the Betamax and JVC, the Victoria Company of Japan, came out with the VHS. And again, like my dad said, Betamax hmm. really was a better quality video. But Betamax recorded on like an hour. That was it. It was like hour was the max. And VHS, it had lesser, the quality wasn't as good, but they could record for like two hours, you know, if, mm -hmm. if not more. When they were first introduced in the 70s, a VCR cost about $1,000, which would have been about $4,500 today. Yeah, that's, we didn't get ours in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. But the prices like dropped because there was so much competition. JVC did something smart they licensed the, their invention to other companies. So you want to build it and brand it your own? Go ahead. They would, they would let people do that. So the market was flooded with, with VHSs. And so the prices dropped significantly. So an article I read uh, from 1985 in the Chicago Tribune was talking about how just 10 years ago, they were a thousand bucks. And as of that article, they were like $200. <laughs> but they got even cheaper than that as time went on in the 1980s. And eventually by the mid or late 80s, JVC wins or the VHS wins this battle, right? Because like I said, there was a whole lot more of them. Oh yeah. Uh, they were cheaper than Betamax and a big thing. Do you remember this big reason that this is always credited for any advances in technology, a particular industry? I'm going to say porn and video games. Porn. Yes. Yeah. Right. But yes, with regard to it, yeah, entertainment, I <laughs> yeah. suppose. Yeah. Definitely porn. So it turns out that Sony was kind of, you know, puritanical. They said, they, they wouldn't permit any companies to sell porn on Betamax tapes. Big mistake there. And JVC's had more like a free market sort of mentality. They're like, we don't care. You put out whatever you want on them. Right. Let the market decide. <laughs> you know what they said? Someday yeah. some guy's going to invent this thing called the internet and 87% <laughs> of it's going to be nothing but porn. And we're all going to be out of business. So let's make our money now. Look, if, if, if there's any young folks listening to this, and we know there's at least a few, there was a period of time where you had to watch stuff live. Sure. You had to watch it when it came on. You had to be on the couch. And suddenly we had this ability to record something one, knowing one time and watch it at some future date. You know, there was a big court battle about that for back then. Yes. You know, what's interesting about that court battle is what you're alluding to is that Walt Disney and Universal sued Sony because of the Betamax. And they said, hey, this is copyright infringement. People could record our stuff, you know? And that's, that lawsuit began in 1976. It didn't get uh, resolved. The judgment wasn't handled down by the Supreme Court until 1984. And by then, Betamax was, you know, essentially obsolete. Most people <laughs> yeah. had VHSs at that point. But you're right. The decision by the Supreme Court was, it's not copyright infringement because people have a right to watch it sitting on their couch. All they're doing is adjusting what time they watch it on their couch. Yeah. And as long as you're not selling it or, or public viewing it for money, 
you're yep. good to go. Now you're, you know, you, you, you have a huge v- VHS collection. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I actually did. I had over 600 right. VHS. Right. down to 300. Yeah. Some hundred. No, don't tell me. Okay. They're, they're almost all gone at this point. No. Yeah. Oh. Only my favoritest ones are left. Mm. Okay. So knowing you only have a few left, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. And it could be that among the few you have left or, and that could be really good news for you, or it could be you looking, thinking back about the ones you sold or gave away and thinking, oh no, what have I done? I have a list here, according to Mental Floss, of the most valuable 1980s VHS tapes to keep an eye out for. Nice. Okay. Because even though VHSs aren't available anymore, in fact, the last film to be released on VHS was in 2006. That was History of Violence. And we haven't seen any new VHSs made by any company since 2016. You know what also is more interesting to me even than that is that Betamax, you know, <laughs> is for all we said that Betamax sort of going in, up into relative obscurity at some point during the 1980s, they didn't stop production of the Betamax recorder till 2002. And they continued making beta video cassettes until 2016. Nice. Right? Isn't that, who's buying them? My I dad. No, I, yeah, your, your dad has a huge collection of them now. He hoards it like, uh, what's that guy, Glenn, uh, Glenn Beck hoards gold. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, it makes enough sense. Something like that. Okay, here you go. So here's a list of 1980s VHS tapes to be on the lookout for because they, they, they're worth some money. All right. Most of them are horror films. I think all of these are horror except for one. Well, See, tell y- me if you, you are aware, yeah. like uh, VHS and horror are like yeah. tied together at the hip. I like, they're just, they're best friends. I only learned that by researching this. Why, why is that? Because for, I, for some reason, people who love to rent movies, love to rent horror movies hmm. back in the eighties. I don't know, man. The only thing I could find is maybe it's because of the box art. You know, it had that really creepy art on it. I don't know. It's weird because there were so many horror movies released in the 80s because yeah. any, like we've talked about before, anyone could make a horror movie at that point. Hmm. So if you had any kind of ability to make special effects, you could do a, yeah. a, a horror movie in the 80s and get it on a VHS. Hmm. I wonder if, does it seem creepier to watch it on a videotape versus digitally? Like having that, feels like the ring maybe every time, like you're putting something in there and. Maybe you're not supposed to see it. Maybe it's like a well, yeah, snuff it, film almost. You know what is cool about the VHS tapes? Uh, it does have that grainy quality, which I think does mm-hmm. give horror movies a different feel. Hmm. It, it does feel definitely creepier to watch it on a VHS. Hmm. As, that's as opposed it. to the high def versions. Yeah. Well, yeah. Now, if you're watching any of those 80s films on high def, you probably spot the uh, special effects a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It seems a little fake. In a, in a bad way, not in the, not in the great cheesy 1980s way. All right, so here you go. All Tell right. me if you know any of these films or if you've ever owned them, or maybe you still do. The Dark Planet. Heard of it, but did not own it. The Prowler. Heard of it, do not own it. Right. Deadly Prey. <laughs> Seen it, don't own it. All right. Blood Lake. Oh, Blood Lake. That's a good one. Um, you know what's funny about this is you could go through anything I own, mm-hmm. and I won't have anything that's worth money. <laughs> You have a gift, like a reverse superpower. I was looking at my baseball card collection again, and I think I probably have 3,000 cards, (laughs) and I don't have, it's like basically $3,000. Yeah, that's a good amount of money. But but it's the entire collection. There's not one card that's worth anything. So, all right, continue the list. I imagine you now going to Scott Schwartz's uh, dad's uh, collectible (laughs) store to get try to cash him in, and you're like uh, like going to that coin machine, that coin star machine at the grocery store. (laughs) 
You have 3,000 cards. <laughs> like those people have those bags of pennies. All right. And the last one on here, last horror movie on here is Demons. That's a good one too. I think I might yeah. have had that. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, here you go. Let's see. 1985 action horror Splatfest that featured, among other things, a huge number of mid-80s glam metal bands like Accept, Motley Crue, Billy Idol, and Saxon. In order to get it on the videotape, though, you may have to dish out upwards of $700. Are you kidding me? Nope. <laughs> See, that's hey. worth almost as much as my entire baseball card collection, and it's gone. All right, now here's another one. You might have this one still. Hmm. The Goonies. You know what? I don't. Ah, <laughs> oh, dang it. <laughs> I don't. I thought for sure you had Damn the Goonies. It. You got a poster of it on your wall, no doubt. God damn it. I don't think I have it anymore. A copy of the Goonies sold in 2019 for $800. Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? Man, I should—I uh, knew no. I should have kept those. I knew uh, it. 800 bucks. Now, when when, v, when videotapes first came out, they cost like 80 bucks. Yeah. But people weren't buying them. Rental stores were buying them. They got them for like 50 bucks, and then they'd rent it out 100 you know, or a thousand times well, for a dollar each. Yeah, but it didn't take me long to figure out I could hook two VCRs together and, and make copies. <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, your mom was really into electronics, so. Well, no, she was into entertainment. Oh, entertainment, I like see. Like the, right. the actual components and everything. Right. She didn't, all she knew was is, I can watch movies at home. I need this. Right. Mm -hmm. If I have to, like, sell the couches and yeah. <laughs> whatever to get this thing, we have to have it. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that, so even though tapes cost a lot of money when they first when this market first began, um, it wasn't until Paramount actually started selling tapes for relatively cheap that the prices went down. And at first, they were selling films like uh, Beverly Hills Cop, Indiana Jones, and The Temple of Doom for 30 bucks, twenty nine mm -hmm. ninety five. Mm -hmm. And then they had a huge, this was a huge breakthrough. In 1986, Top Gun comes out. Now they lower the price to twenty six ninety five. Now it's almost affordable. At the time, it was the lowest price ever asked for a major motion picture on cassette. Hmm. Now, see, I don't think we actually owned a VHS tape, like tape. the actual yeah. one that they sold. Yeah. Until like 1987 <laughs> or 88. Hmm. Like That's a good question. I think yeah. most everything we had was recorded off a of cable yeah. mm -hmm. or something we rented. And, you know, like I said, the two VCR setup. Right. And we just recorded it. But I, I, I swear to God, man, it probably wasn't until like 88 and before we actually bought anything on VHS. That is a really good question. You're right. I can't think of the first cassette we ever owned that we bought. You're right. Most of them had a white label with my dad's handwriting <laughs> yeah. on it. <laughs> or my friend, my dad's shady friend. You're right. You know? Mm. Yeah. Or we rented it and then we, yeah, we just brought it back. We didn't do the two VCR thing. That probably would have been a step too far for us. But yeah, recording it off of HBO... Which we, I think our HBO was stolen too from some like antenna or something. I'm actually surprised because you, you and your dad are way more advanced with electronics and technology and everything than I am. Yeah, I think that just seems too um, premeditated, you know? Shady? Yeah, too shady. It's like, it's too much steps involved. I mean, you're definitely going down some kind of piracy uh, rabbit hole there. No. Who doesn't want to be a pirate? Arg. Drink rum for breakfast? Come I guess, on. I guess my dad, I don't know. All right. Hey, without further ado, let's talk about some of the most paused moments. So we did solicit some feedback from listeners and folks on Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. So we did get a number of different responses. It won't surprise you to learn. Are they, are they all the same answer? They're not, but there's all, I think <laughs> all, weird. but let me see. 
Nope. They're all involved nudity. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there should actually only, like the most, the big one is mm-hmm. yeah. obviously yeah, Phoebe Cates. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I guess as a side note, let's just say uh, there's a couple of honorable mentions that we're not going to talk about because we talked about them on our Urban Legends episode. So if you want to hear about that, go to Urban Legends. Roger mm-hmm. Rabbit, you know, Jessica Rabbit, I should say specifically, that's a paused moment. And Three Men and a Baby, that's a, pa- yep. a paused moment. We talked about those already. Okay, but you're right. Common answer. We got it from multiple people, including uh, on Twitter. Gen X Cheese wrote this. Uh, and Matthew Hansen made this comment, I think, on Facebook. Fast Times at Richmond High. Um, of course, the uh, film features a number of folks who are huge stars now, but most pertinent to this part of our episode is <laughs> it starred Phoebe Cates as Linda and uh, Judge Reinhold as Brad. Mm-hmm. And at about 50 minutes in, 50 minutes, 51 seconds, Brad is fantasizing about uh, Linda, who is uh, swimming in, in Brad's pool. And in his fantasy, she comes out of the pool uh, wearing a red bikini. And as she approaches Brad, she removes her top. Pause. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Every time I hear that song, I think of that movie. Yes. <laughs> but you know, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is no slouch in this movie either. She holds up her own in the paused moments. That's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and a number, some of these films, folks pointed out one moment or another, but there was plenty of choices <laughs> to be made. Uh, I guess in the interest of you know, I'm going to lump a few of these together here just to get through some of these uh, ones like this, right? Mm-hmm. Also in this category, uh, let's see, Eric recommended uh, us take a look at Janet Jones in Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach. I believe that she's actually has her clothes on, but she looks very attractive in a bathing suit. So that's a similar one. Um, nine and a Half Weeks and Wild Orchid, Tanya Harris. Uh, Steve mm-hmm. Roca recommended, well, he recommended the... <laughs> I mean, are we putting this in the show, all this? Yeah, do it. He writes, it's got to be the chick with the three knockers on Total Recall. Oh, I was going to bring that up. I think Total Recall might be 90. 1990, right. Yeah, we did get some of that were out of the 80s. That's okay, though, because I can see where that would confuse you. Yeah, those borderline ones. Now, this one's a little bit further into the 90s, uh, but Richard French wrote Basic Instinct, of course. Mm, Yeah. Another similar one popped up on many of these lists was Excalibur. You could see a very attractive Helen Mirren and I think a number of other people. So no one suggested the scene where the, in Beastmaster, where the Mm. hag shows her boobies. Oh, wait a second. Is that? Because that, that's very sexually confusing Mm. for a young boy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no one, no, no one did. And the way you're describing it, I'm not surprised. I don't remember that moment and probably for the reasons you're suggesting. It was confusing and upsetting. Yeah. Kind of like how I felt at the end of Last American Virgin. It's like, oh, I thought this was a fun <laughs> romp. Now, for folks who are interested in seeing the male anatomy, we, may we recommend American Gigolo from 1980? It's considered the one that started it all. Richard Gere, of course, no problem showing his, uh, you know, appearing uh, in his uh, birthday suit. But at the time that he did this, it was the first time a major Hollywood star appeared in the nude in the film. Yeah. And from what I understand, um, Wahlberg mm. in Boogie Nights was so threatened by mm. that uh, movie that he had to have the prosthetic put on his Is, because he was so embarrassed. Wow. That's absolutely not true. But. Okay. <laughs> it sounded great. <laughs> but if you say it enough times, it becomes true. We learned that from Daniel Rickman. <laughs> but in 2012, regarding the nudity, Richard Gere told Entertainment Weekly that he said, if I recall, the nudity wasn't in the script. 
I was just in the natural process of making the movie. I certainly felt vulnerable, but I think it's different for men than it's for women. Oh, what's that? That when they get in the where they get all into the character, what's that called? Method acting. He was method acting. Yes, that's what happened right there. He just took his clothes off. Yeah, the director's rolling his arm back <laughs> around and around. And I'm like, keep going, keep going, keep it rolling. Zoom in. <laughs> or zoom out. Oh, do something. <laughs> do something. We're paying you to work this equipment. Okay. All right. So here's a, here's one. Teen Wolf. Oh, Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf from 1985. So of course, obviously, the movie features a teen played by Michael J. Fox who learns at some point in the film that he is actually a werewolf, and so he does uh, wolf out. And at first, it's a secret mm-hmm. that he keeps, and eventually, the whole school knows about it culminating in this climactic scene at the end where on the basketball team, they're fighting their, you know, longtime rivals. And he has a decision to make whether he's going to be a wolf and just, you know, crush these people as he does, or he's going to try to win as a human. Mm-hmm. He chooses human. And of course they win. Yeah. Because it's a 1980s film. Because it's an 80s movie. Right? Yeah. Now, when everybody's going crazy, screaming and yelling in the crowd, uh, Michael, Jake's, Michael J. Fox's character, Scott Howard, steals a kiss with his love interest, Boof. And then they cut to another picture, a scene of the crowd, which now we're at about an hour and 28 minutes in. And we see his dad also in the stands. And right off to the side next to his dad appears to be a person with their pants just hanging wide open. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that, um, in fact, in, in spite of what you might have heard, it's actually not a man. In the full frame version of the film, you can actually see it's a woman. And a, another extra in the film, Christina Haggerty, commented that she believes what probably happened is the extra was seated, her pants were too tight. So she unzipped them while seated. This exciting moment happens and they have everybody stand up, stand up. She leaps up and forgetting her pants are open. Huh. They just start hanging wide open there. I've never noticed that in that movie. Yeah. That's a weird one to pause if you thought it was a dude. <laughs> no, Because well, generally speaking, like, aren't, aren't girls more mature than, well, than, than boys? I think they just respond to something different. Like men are more visual with regard to, you know... Uh, Things that are titillating. Well, in my opinion, I would say more pause than Dustin's junk and mm-hmm. the imaginary guy standing up. The volleyball scene from Top Gun's probably more pause than both of those. Mm, that's true. Because women just think different. Yeah. Okay. Hey, here's another one. Ghostbusters 1984. I've heard of this movie. Okay. So there is a scene where, you know, where... They are finally, our heroes, the Ghostbusters, are finally forced to shut down the Ghostbuster containment field and their old uh, fire station turned into a headquarters by that uh, pencil neck, Walter Peck. (laughs) You do your job, pencil neck. Don't tell me how to do mine. (laughs) What did they call him? Oh, yeah. Dickless. That's right. They they call him dickless. Uh, This man has no Well, that's what I heard. (laughs) Okay, Walter Peck shuts down the containment field and all hell breaks loose. The ghosts start escaping. When you see uh, people fleeing from the building there, um, there's a number of onlookers that are outside of the building. If you look in the crowd, you may spot a familiar figure who helped, probably one of the people that helped make the VHS beat the Betamax, uh, none other than the hedgehog, Ron Jeremy, is among those people standing in the crowd there. So before he was a world-renowned porn star, and I think now he's a sex offender, um, (laughs) Ron Jeremy... Was trying to, you know, just work in the films whenever he could. So at about an hour, eight minutes in, you can see him in the crowd there. Maybe hard to make him out in certain versions of the film because, as you know, they crop it for TV and there's mm-hmm. different types of cuts. Additionally, and this is one you're never going to see, 
<laughs> I mean, you could pause it and you still won't recognize her. But in 2016, Debbie Gibson revealed on social media that she made her big screen debut in Ghostbusters because she is the girl celebrating her birthday at the Tavern on the Green when Rick Moranis' character is banging on the window there. So in the scene, you see one table has balloons and there's a family yeah. celebrating. It's right where he is, pretty much. There's a girl with a bow in her hair. That's Debbie Gibson. She couldn't have brought this up earlier? Like to try to make her way in career, like leveraging her her non-speaking role in Ghostbusters? <laughs> like that's way more impressive than than almost everything else she's done. Then out of the blue. Well, I mean- only in my dreams. She dated the guy from the Circle Jerks, which is really cool. Oh. And she was in Ghostbusters. So mm-hmm. it's time to talk to Debbie Gibson. Yeah. Let's talk to her and only ask her about Ghostbusters. <laughs> on the list, because now I need to know. <laughs> she is on the list. <laughs> but you know that, because mm-hmm. we are big fans of Debbie Gibson's and have a ton of questions for her about how she yeah. found success in the 1980s. Okay, hey, this is one that I personally paused, rewound, paused, played again. Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981. At about an hour and 42 minutes in, we're at a scene, a scene now where India has now infiltrated the, the Nazis, and they're on that island. They've got the Ark there. They're going to do their experiment. Belloc has convinced the Germans to let him open the Ark, right? Do his uh, ceremony, opening the Ark to see, you know, because uh, for him, it has religious significance that it doesn't have for the Nazis. Indy is there. He's got a rocket launcher on the top of a hill and he shouts down Belloc, Belloc, let uh, Marion go or I'll blow up the ark, right? When mm-hmm, Belloc mm-hmm. is looking back up at Indy, a fly lands on his head and it's crawling around while he talks. The fly s- crawls across his lips, disappears into his mouth and is never seen again. Yeah. How the actor who was uh, Paul Freeman played uh, Belloc continued, hmm. yes. it's just a testament to his uh, professionalism that he could act with insects on his face. Well, they did it in The Exorcist too, but um, this one's weird hmm. because at the time I've seen this movie a bunch of times until it was pointed out to me. I yeah. never noticed it. Oh, when I was a kid? Never noticed it. Of course, you saw Raiders in the, in the movies. I don't remember if I spotted it in the movie theater, but when we had it at home on tape, it was, again, seriously, it was something I paused. Wait a second. Where'd that fly go? But once again, you have to understand that Harrison Ford's my man crush. So yeah. everybody yeah. else in that movie is second rate. You were distracted. I don't care what they do. Yeah. He's pausing on Harrison Ford during the scene when it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not the miles, baby. No, it's not yeah. the years, baby. It's the mileage. Yeah. I, I'm like, ah, yeah, I'm picking, I'm writing this <laughs> so I can use this. <laughs> Does it hurt here? Does it hurt? Here? <laughs> All right. And also here's, and here's a bonus, uh, pausable moment from Rage of the Lost Ark. This is one I didn't learn about till I was, I don't know, last 20 years or so, I think, well after the film was out, that hidden in the uh, the, the tomb where they finally unearth the uh, Ark alongside uh, Indy in hieroglyphics is none other than characters from another George Lucas property. Do you know who? Obviously, it's R2-D2 and C-3PO. Yes, right. And that's crazy. It's hilarious that they would do that. Yeah, that's cool. I I like that one a lot because yeah. it's the crossover. It's you know they did weird shit like that back then. So yeah. I like that. I thought that one was cool. Yeah, like in uh, Temple of Doom, you got the Obi Wan Cafe. You know that's where the yeah. first scene yeah. takes place. <laughs> I love oh, that one. Club Obi Wan, rather Club yeah, Obi Wan. Cl- the whatever it is, it's yeah. awesome. But it's yeah, perfect. That, it's hard to spot that R two and C three PO. So it does require a tricky uh, pause finger. To get that one. That one is way harder to spot than the Obi-Wan 
Yeah, Club Obi Wan Temple. Yeah. Because they made sure that they gave you a good shot of the Obi-Wan. Yeah, and actually thinking about that, you're right. There's other Easter eggs in Indiana Jones and these films that don't require pausing because they're out in the open like that. Yeah. Okay, so in Tron, 1982. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're very familiar with the film. Uh, and it's uh, Yeah, this is an obvious one. Yeah, and actually, this film has got more than one Easter egg in it, but the one that we're talking about today occurs at 45 minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, it's a scene where um, David Warner's character, who plays the villain, Sark, is lecturing his troops because um, Tron and, shoot, what's Jeff Bridges' character's name? I'd hate to get the name wrong. Yeah, boy. All right, so Jeff Bridges and Bruce Boxleitner. I know in, I know in the game, I know in the game his name is, his name is Clue and Flynn. Oh, oh yeah, Flynn, right. Uh, yeah, all right. Kevin. Yeah, Flynn. All right, Flynn. Anyway, so yeah, so Tron and Clue, escape through on the light cycles and Sark freaks out to find them, find them. And he's looking at his computer screen. And the biggest thing that gives away this Easter egg or this thing, this pausable moment is the sound. Cause in your right side of the right speaker, the right side of your TV, you hear this, waka, 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 which is mm -hmm. easily identifiable as the sound of Pac-Man, which sends your eyes looking and now pausing the VHS to find none other than Pac-Man among uh, the many different, uh, his, his, you know, very detailed digital display that he's looking at, you know, munching away there uh, in a maze full of pellets. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. I like this one. Yeah, that one I didn't catch when I was a kid. I don't know. I, 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 never, I never caught it as a kid, but the second that I found out about it, I was like, yeah. I have to absolutely see this. Yeah. And another one that I only learned about because of looking for the Pac-Man one, which I knew I've known about for a while now, is at about an hour and 12 minutes in, um, they're on now that sale sort of barge, uh, digital sort of sail barge that they've hijacked. And they go over the sort of digital lake. And clear as daylight there is a giant uh, silhouette of Mickey Mouse. You can't miss it. <laughs> okay. And here's another one. Now, I know I, I know I clumped all the, you know, <laughs> the... Uh, scintillating uh, ones together, but I'm going to leave the, I left this one for a special place only because it's, it's true. And it's, you know, I feel connected to it. Trading places, 1983, right? No possible <laughs> list would be complete without this. I think we might've brought this up at least six or I seven know. times since we started the podcast. It's got it. Look, if it's because of me, I apologize, but it's true. Uh, it's because it's true. I, I'm pretty sure I've brought it up plenty of times too. Right. So. So I, I might even have brought it up on the last episode within, I'm <laughs> yes. sure I brought it up within the last month. Oh, you did. And I think that's I why I, we said, well, you should do, we should just do an episode about these moments because this is definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So folks, of course, know that uh, in, in Trading Places, Dan Aykroyd plays a character, Lewis Winthorpe III, who's framed uh, as a thief, as a drug dealer, a philanderer who loses his money, his house, his fiance, and he's jailed. And when, when he's doing his, uh, you know, waiting in jail there to... Uh, sort out what's going on. He meets uh, Ophelia, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who is a prostitute, who decides to help him in exchange for money. You know, uh, she's going to help him out. He offers to pay, and of course, she's a businesswoman, so she says yes. She invites him to her apartment, uh, and once inside, she goes into the uh, bathroom there, nearby bathroom, to to change, where she removes her wig and starts removing her clothing. Uh, finally, she makes it down to her top, and her breasts are fully exposed. At that point, she clarifies their relationship, saying, by the way, food and rent aren't the only things around here that cost money. You sleep on the couch. At which point, she slams the door on Dan Aykroyd's face. 
This is. It's <laughs> a great movie. Uh, this gave this gave yep. me an unrealistic uh, life mm. viewpoint of mm. prostitutes. Oh, <laughs> wait a second. This mm-hmm. this in risky business mm. like. This is like, oh, these are, this is what prostitutes look like. Oh Oh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. I got to get one of those. They're they're clean and nice and help you. Right. Yeah. Obviously that's how they're all going to be. Right. Right. I just got to go down that path. I've saved up some money. Now I'm going to find out the truth. (laughs) Yeah. No. Uh, Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one of the greatest scenes in, in the history of movies. Yeah. I was bummed out to read in 20, in 2013, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis wrote an essay for the Huffington Post that was sparked by. Seth MacFarlane's song that he did at uh, the Oscars, remember this? When he hosted it, his opening song was We've Seen Your Boobs or something like that. So, yeah, we Saw Your Boobs. Like mm-hmm. I think the gist of it was, you know, hey, you're a fancy Academy Awarding act- winning actress, but we've seen you half naked, so settle down. That's what I recall the vibe is, which sounds really awful now, especially. Uh, it so- well, it sounds like him, so. Yeah. Hey, I don't know that he would do that now. I don't know. I think he's... I guarantee he still would. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, in re- in reaction to that, she wrote a piece on the Huffington Post about how insensitive it was, and <laughs> it's sensitive. it is insensitive. Well, look, it, it's it is. It's sexist. It's it's reducing these women who achieved this certain reward for acting and saying that's fine, but I've seen your nipples. I mean, what what is that? Instead of just <laughs> instead of just continuing to praise <laughs> her for what she's achieved, we're going to focus on this other really just juvenile. Thing. <sighs> Which our entire episode has been mostly. Hmm. You know what? <laughs> You're hot and you showed your boobs. Whatever. I mean, I don't know what you want us to say. Like, this is for us when we were yep. kids. I don't know what else to well, say that's about true. it. Like, yes. But, we so- were very young men when these, this movie came out and we saw it and- yep. And for your career, um, we've supported you ever since. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't. And Jamie Lee DeCurris isn't certainly saying anything about the 13 and 14 year old boys who first saw naked women. Yeah. And I'll say this. Uh, I'll say this. Uh, I've never seen Betty White's boobs and yep. I've never spent a dime on any of her f-ing movies. Oh, Uh, In 2013, she wrote, I'm an actress who has bared her breasts in films to satisfy the requirement of the role I was asked to do. Lucky to do. For in my case, those films were significant in my career. I didn't like doing it. I didn't ask if I could do them topless. I did what was asked of me for the part I was playing, mostly asked by men. So she didn't like doing it, but she's grateful for what it did for her ultimately because she appreciates those roles were significant in her path. Man, I don't know if I should say this, but... Mm. She cashed the goddamn check. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, look. And she still gets paid. She's not saying anything and, against that. Hey, trading places probably mm-hmm. makes a lot of money still because yeah. of that scene. Yeah. Look, again, she's not saying she regrets it. No, I, I just, it's weird. It's just a weird topic, man. You know, I, I agree. What's weird for me about it is it really shouldn't be a big deal. But we live in a country where nudity is like, uh, we're supposed to be shamed, shameful of it, you know, yeah. ashamed of it. You, you show nudity in a movie, you're almost guaranteed an R rating, yeah. but you can, you can have people slicing yeah. people to bits and mm-hmm. shooting them yeah. and dropping F-bombs. You can still get a PG-13, yeah. but you show some boobies. Yeah, it is bizarre. And, it, and you get an R rating. It just, it's, it's mind boggling. Like the other flip side of it for me is, is I don't know why we need to see the nudity. 
I know why I like seeing nudity, <laughs> especially I when I was say. when I was 13 and these films came out and we could pause them. I get that. And, you know, talking to um, Diane Franklin and she was in a documentary, Skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we talked to uh, Cindy Morgan. Cindy Morgan. Learning about how the seedy side of it is that men were in these roles said, you know what? We can get more people go to go to the movie theater to see naked women because you can't see them on TV. And right. how do we get them to go? So that's why they did it. So I get that, you know, there's sort of business reason they did it, but I don't know why artistically we need to see it. I know as a teenager why I liked to see it. Because also, mm-hmm. by the way, we had no access to porn at the time, really. I mean, Correct. Yeah. Life was very different yeah. back then. I mean, unless like, you found a magazine in a, in a woods somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, Which you did yeah. occasionally. Well, occasionally that, that happened, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, life was very different back then. So these were our moments. Yeah. This was like, if I want to see boobies, God, I got to wait for Porky's again or whatever to come out. Yeah. Or whatever you can make out in the static on that channel that oh, you didn't pay for. Oh, uh, uh, Cinemax. Yeah, Cinemax or Showtime. If whatever could, the hell it was back in the day. Every now and then. And you're you, trying to unscramble it. If you got the, if you, you know, that had that physical dial, if you could get it between the numbers. Maybe yeah. you could see something. Or they'd accidentally, like, it'd be free every once yes. in a while. Yes, And you would pray to God your parents didn't find out that it was mm. free. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, uh, good times. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's like, I don't know why you need to put it in trading places. I'm glad that you did, because I was 13 at the time when it came out. And But I get the, pers- so I get the perspective. But but also, I don't think it should be such a big deal. And, you know, in, in, in Europe, they have nudity on the front page of the newspaper, you know, so... Yeah, Samantha Fox did nudity on right. uh, in the newspaper, right. for Christ's sake. Page three, yeah. All right, and one last one for the kids at home here. Scanners, 1981. Uh, are, we, are we going to the head explosion? Of course. It's the thing that people most remember about Scanners, if they remember anything at all. Of course, the film is about Scanners. <laughs> it's in the title. Right. You're at the grocery store. Boop. Yes. Boop. It's a boring Boop. film, but there's a crazy scene. Michael Ironside plays a bad, to talk about in simple terms here, but everybody listening knows about this film, right? Michael Ironside mm-hmm. plays a bad scanner, a person who has this telekinetic ability, and he infiltrates a conference of good scanners who are trying to recruit as many scanners as they can to their organization to find the bad scanners. And during a uh, presentation, right, I guess you'd say, on stage there, Michael Ironside makes uh, another character who's sitting next to him uh, makes his head explode, and then he flees in the in the explo- you know in the havoc that uh, happens. I mm-hmm. I did pause and rewind this because you know in, in the eighties I was obsessed with to- uh, special effects, how they made horror yeah. special effects. You know, I love the work of uh, you know these different effects guys. Uh, is it Tom Savini and Rick Baker, Kevin Yeager? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say that's uh we we didn't we didn't hit that for me. The thing. There's a lot of pauses in mm. that for me. Yes. That's true. Rob Bottin, yes. A lot of groundbreaking special effects in that film. I probably yeah. did it then too. That chest ex- uh, opening the, up. The chest explosion, the the spider head. Spider head, yeah. The, the dog um, mm-hmm. turning into the monster thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then he breaks to the ceiling. Yeah. Because of the Phoebe Cates thing, I forgot all about that. So <laughs> I wanted to make sure I brought that up. <laughs> Went down a different path. Yeah. Um, I, I think for Scanners, for me, part of it and some of the other effects in other films was to see like how it transitioned from maybe the real actor to the fake actor, like finding that frame. Because often mm-hmm. in these scenes, 
real actors there. Now they've replaced it with a, you know, a prosthetic, you know, duplicate that they can mess right. with. So I like to catch that moment, you know. Um, but for anybody who's familiar with this scene, they may be interested to learn that it was tricky for them to figure out how to make this head explode in the way that ultimately does on the film. Um, they made a bunch of different dummy heads uh, that were made from, you know, plaster uh, skulls and gelatin exteriors that they would then pack with different latex scraps, wax, uh, old hamburger meat was, was inside hmm. of there. Anything they thought that looked like viscous and stringy that would look like some kind of, you know, brain matter that would be flying over. Um, they tried a number of explosive effects to try to get it to blow that the way they imagined it should, but they all failed. So frustrated, the special effects supervisor, Gary Seller, Zeller, said, told everybody, roll the cameras and then get inside those trucks with the doors and windows closed, get down. Then he just got behind the, the uh, prosthetic head, took out his shotgun and shot it in the back <laughs> of the head. And, hey, when you know what's got to be done, you do it. I just picture you at your work. It's kind of stuff like this must happen all the time. That happens every day where I work at my job as a full-time full podcaster. podcaster. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everybody get in the trucks, put the windows up, get down. <laughs> I'm going to take care of this podcasting scenario. That's right. Can you imagine? You're like, what's Gary going to do? Oh my God, he's got a gun. I knew he was frustrated. <laughs> and you're the guy who like failed making it explode the first three times. And then Gary goes and gets a shotgun. This is the 80s though. You don't think anything... Is out of sorts. It's just normal day-to-day -day living. All right, that's all of them, though. All right, so hey. We, we, I feel like I did put somewhat of a warning at the beginning. Look, we're going to talk about nudity. It's not all going to be nudity, uh, but it's going to be honest. But it's going to be honest. It's a, it's a weird dynamic with this one, man. Mm -hmm. Looking back and and how life is now, it's, it's a hard one. Yeah. This was a tough one. But it's real. It's real. Real dumb. It's real. And we can't lie. It'd be no good to us to lie about it. Yeah. So, hey, we learned about, I know I learned about a number of different possible moments in films. And some of them I, I didn't recall, as I said. There was many of them that I do remember seeing as a kid and actually running over to pause and rewind, etc. Um, But I don't know that we proved anything. <laughs> we have proven. Oh, okay. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Right. Wow. <laughs> Just say it, whatever it is. Fine. That, without the pausable moments of the 1980s films, mm -hmm. we would not be the men we are today. Ah, that is such a poetic way of saying what I think you really want to say. Boobies. <laughs> All right. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.